That's a good morning, y'all. Um, I'm going to be reading the passage for this morning. Uh, it's going to be Exodus 9, uh, starting in verse 13 and through the end of the chapter. So Exodus 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand out and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause a a very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day that it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send... Get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant in the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down on the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually, in the midst of the hail very very heavy hail, such as never been seen in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck struck down every plant in the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called called to Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there, has, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord, and the thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they were late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart and his he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And he did not let the people go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Thank you, Miles. 
Good morning, guys. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and so glad you've come to join us. Uh, We're continuing our study of the book of Exodus, and today we're going to try to look at chapters 9 and 10. Uh, Miles read a big chunk of chapter 9 where we'll spend most of our time, but we're really working through, uh, hoping to work through the first nine plagues this morning and kind of get our minds around some of the purpose behind what God was doing here. And when you start thinking about that word purpose, that brings to mind lots and lots of questions. There are so many times in our own lives, of course, where we don't know God's purposes. And we can understand in some sense what is going on, but we ask ourselves and maybe we ask others, maybe we ask the Lord himself, what are you doing? Why is this happening? What is the purpose for what I'm seeing? Even in the scriptures, uh, sometimes we read about certain events and we see that God is clearly acting, but there's not really an explanation given as to why. And then there are places in the Bible like the plagues where God makes it abundantly clear what he is doing and precisely why he is doing it. It's as if at this pivotal moment in history, the Lord God did not want to be misunderstood. And so over and over in this narrative, if you read from Exodus 3 or so through Exodus 12, you're going to find these different purposes articulated as God gives voice to why he is doing what he is doing. And I like to think of it in terms of an answer to a couple of key questions that we saw a few chapters back. Do you guys remember in Exodus chapter 5 when Moses and Aaron first go to Pharaoh and They say, the Lord, our God, has called us to leave this land and go into the wilderness and sacrifice to him. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? I mean, who who is Yahweh, he would have been saying. In one sense, the plagues are answering that question. But it's bigger than just that, because you remember a couple chapters before, when God first appeared to Moses and he said, you're going to go to my people and you're going to tell them I've come to rescue them from Egypt, Moses says, what will I say if they ask, what is his name? And remember we talked about, he's not looking for like an identification there. He's really asking, who are you? Who is this God who claims to be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And so in one sense, the purpose of the plagues is to answer those two questions to those two individuals and all the people they represent. So on the one hand, it's to Pharaoh and Egypt, and in a sense, all the nations of the world. Who is the Lord? This is who the Lord is. God is going to be making his name known among the nations through the plagues. And then on the other hand, it's the answer to Moses, the people of Israel, and people of faith who follow in their footsteps, where God is making his heart known to his people. So we're going to kind of walk through these nine plagues today, and I want us to keep those two purposes in mind. We'll dig into that a little bit more as we get to the seventh plague there in the passage Miles read, because what's important to see here is that this is not just what God is doing in Exodus. It's so important to understand the purpose of the plagues because they're, they're broader and bigger, and they're closer to the heart of God than we might realize at first reading. This is not just what God is doing in Exodus. It's what God is always doing making his name known among the nations, revealing his heart to his people. And if that's what God is always doing, then it's what his people ought to be about as well. 
So you remember last week we looked at the first four plagues in chapter 7 and 8. Just to recap briefly, we, we kind of focused on uh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We, we talked about the Egyptian sorcerers and how they were able to do the things they did. And then at the end we looked at those four plagues. And remember the first one, uh, Moses and Aaron turned the water of the Nile to blood, kind of striking at Egypt's uh, myth of self-sufficiency, thinking they had the Nile so they didn't need God. Uh, and then as the story continues, the magicians of Egypt match that. They're able to do the same thing, so Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. And then in the second plague, the land is made full of frogs, right? And the magicians are able to match that as well. But Pharaoh goes to Moses and asks him to end it. They apparently can do the same things, but they can't stop what Moses and Aaron are doing. And so he goes to Moses. He says, we please make this uh, go away? Moses does. And then Pharaoh hardens his heart again. So the third plague happens. Now the air is full of gnats. And this one the magicians can't copy. They can't make this happen for some reason. They themselves say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They recognize who's behind it. But Pharaoh still refuses to listen. And then there was the fourth plague where their houses and the rest of the land become full of flies. And here Pharaoh begins to make his first offer. He comes to Moses. I guess I should say Moses comes to him. And he says, well, how about you guys just do this sacrifice thing here in Egypt? Moses says, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. We need to go out into our own place. And so Pharaoh agrees to let them go, but not very far. Moses pulls the plague back, and then Pharaoh recants and changes his mind. And so there's this basic pattern already established, and we're going to see it repeated again today. There's a little variation each time, but it always looks something like this. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, say, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. The Lord sends a plague. Pharaoh begs for mercy. The Lord removes the plague, Pharaoh recants, and keeps the people exactly where they are. Based on the contextual clues in the story here, we think this process may have been something like six months long. So I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I read these like it's like morning and evening, <laughs> you know, like the next day this happened, and the next day this happened. It's probably stretched out a bit more. It's talking about the wheat and the barley and different things going on. That that's probably gives you a sense of what time of year some of these things happen. It may have been some six months or so, but what we're, begin, what we're going to begin to see as we get into these new stories today is that as the plagues grow more and more severe, Pharaoh and his people begin to crack. And so if you look at the beginning of chapter 9, we come upon the fifth plague, and here we're going to see that the livestock of the, Egyptian are going to be, of the Egyptians are going to be put to death. So the first four plagues, if you think about it, they really created what we might call like quality of life issues. I mean, gnats and flies, they're a great nuisance, but, but nobody's dying from a gnat bite or something like that. But here is the first plague to result in death, and it's the cattle belonging to the Egyptians. Some kind of infection spreads through the livestock, and Pharaoh's, Pharaoh goes out to make sure, he sends someone out to make sure it's only the Egyptians' cattle. It's not happening to the cattle of the Israelites. Clearly, God is taking aim at those many Egyptian deities associated with cattle, right? You think about later on in the book of Exodus when Israel is free and they go to make that golden calf. Where did they get that idea to make a golden calf? Well, it's what they had seen in Egypt. They had seen all these holy objects shaped like cattle. So God strikes down the cattle of the Egyptians and Pharaoh again refuses to listen. You get to the sixth plague. Now the plagues are getting closer and closer to home. Right? It's been out in the land. It's affected uh, the air. 
It's affected the cattle. Now they're starting to see things appear on their own bodies. It's getting closer and closer to the Egyptians themselves. They have these little boils. These skin infections begin to appear. There's also some great drama in this one. Notice uh, there in verse 8 or 9, as it's talking about what Moses is to do, he says to take some soot from the kiln and let Moses throw it in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. Now, what's a kiln? Well, it's like an oven or a fire pit type thing where you would, you would burn things to make things like bricks, right? As remember, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, make their work even harder. They're going to build these cities for me and they're going to do it with bricks without straw. And so in all likelihood, what's happening here is God says to Moses, go to those kilns, those symbols of your slavery, those things that Pharaoh thinks are are just his way of showing how powerful and strong he is. Pick up the ashes, throw it in the air, And that's going to be the symbol of this disease spreading through the land and spreading through his people. God's making it clear to Pharaoh, these are my people, and you're going to pay for the way you are treating them. And then it says, the magicians themselves could not stand before Moses because of the boils. It's kind of fascinating to think about these things from their perspective. I mean, at the beginning of the story, it it seems like they're going to go toe-to-toe, like some kind of heavyweight fight. Moses and Aaron, the Egyptian magicians, and they're going to see who can do what. And within a couple of plagues, they can't match what Moses is doing. And now they're infected with what has happened, and God is bringing them to their knees. He is showing the Egyptians, you cannot trust in your gods. They have no power to heal. And yet still, Pharaoh refuses to listen. So then we get to uh, the middle of chapter 9, the seventh plague, and God is going to give Moses a speech to deliver to Pharaoh. And we want to look at that in some detail because this is where we get the clearest articulation of what God is doing here and his purpose behind the plagues. We get kind of part A of his purpose here. And you can pick it up in verse 13. He says, the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. So remember, who is the Lord? Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know, you Pharaoh may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Who is the Lord? Here's your answer, Pharaoh. The plagues are coming after you. You're going to get a very clear picture of who I am. And you're going to learn several things about the Lord here. You're going to learn, on the one hand, that the Lord reigns supreme over the Egyptian gods. Right? We've seen this. So many of these plagues aim particularly at the gods of Egypt. I used to read these stories as a kid and think, why in the world did he send all those frogs? I mean, why, why flies? I mean, why this and not that? And then you begin to learn more of the background and you realize these were the things that the Egyptians were hoping in. And God is systematically knocking them down one by one. In the book of Numbers, in uh, chapter 33, Moses puts it like this. He says, the Lord was executing judgment on their gods. That's what's happening here. So he's showing that he reigns supreme over their gods. He's also showing that the Lord has authority over all creation. All right, so down in verse 29, he says that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. 
Like God is using all these semi-natural phenomena to demonstrate his power. Most of these plagues are things that uh, kind of already happen in nature. They just don't typically happen maybe at this time of year or to this level of severity or after someone says, hey, this is going to happen tomorrow morning, right? And so it's, it's not that there were no flies in Egypt before Moses sends them. Flies are buzzing around all the time. But the Egyptians had never met a man that could say, the flies are coming and they're going to be in all your houses tomorrow morning. And then it happened. And then when he pronounced it, it stopped and they went away. So what God is doing here is he's showing his authority over all creation. He's bending creation to his will. And then thirdly, he's showing that the Lord is sovereign over Pharaoh himself. And that's what he gets at in the next verse there. If you look back at verse 15, again, this is God telling Moses what to speak on his behalf to Pharaoh. So he says, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. He says, look, Pharaoh, let's be serious here. I could have wiped you out by this point, right? I mean, I could have snuffed you out in a moment. But I'm doing something bigger than you here. Right? I mean, we, we asked the question last week, if God has power over the human heart, why doesn't he just soften Pharaoh's heart so that the first time Moses goes to him, he's like, okay, sure, you guys go ahead. And they just can kind of leave quietly without any trouble. We might also ask, if he has authority over all creation, if he's a God of life and death, why doesn't he just snuff Pharaoh out? Why does he just wipe him off the face of the earth? And here he gives some answer to that. He says, oh, I've raised Pharaoh up for this very moment. I've raised him up to show my power over him. It's a fascinating little sub-theme you'll find in the scriptures is when God speaks to these pagan rulers who think they're the kings of the world at the time. And it's like he's whispering in their ear, like, by the way, you're exactly where I put you. And I, I, I put you here for my, my purpose, not your own. He's going to say that to Cyrus. He's going to say that to Nebuchadnezzar. Jesus is going to say that to Pilate, right? You don't have any authority that hasn't been given to you. Herod falls in the same vein. In the book of Revelation, they're hoping the same things as they think about the emperors in Rome, right? God is showing his sovereignty over the rulers of this world. Now, why is he doing that? Why not just soften Pharaoh's heart at the beginning? Why not just snuff him out and remove him from the equation? Well, he explains it there at the end of verse 16. So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. If we're to understand the book of Exodus, we have to recognize that there is a missional intent to the plagues. These are not just cool tricks. These are not just ways of devastating a nation. and They're not only judgment. Their revelation of who God is. And in judging the Egyptians, God is actually calling them to repentance. And, and watch this. He's giving them an opportunity to turn to him. Look what he does there in the next verse. He says, you're still exalting yourself over my people and will not let them all go. So behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen in Egypt from this day until it was found until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into Shafe 
and a safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. And what's God doing there? He is giving the Egyptians an opportunity to turn and trust in his word. This plague, unlike the others, is a true test of faith. Will any Egyptians believe the word of the Lord? Will any take him at his word? And as you read on in the story, you find out that some do. It says they feared the word of the Lord. And you can just kind of imagine, I, I'm, I'm kind of imagining the scene like in, in like a modern context where you've got this, this servant standing there next to Pharaoh and they hear this proclamation from Moses and Pharaoh's like, we don't believe Moses, we're not doing this. And the servants are like, yeah. And then they're like texting their wife, like, hey, get everything inside. <laughs> you know, like, when I get home, everything's in the barn. <laughs> we're not taking any chances. And I don't know what their motivation was. I don't know that this is true saving faith. But what I do know is God is giving these people an opportunity to repent. And some of them go, you know what? There's something to this Lord. We've been talking about these gods all our lives. And we've been praying to these gods all our lives. And they just keep getting knocked over. And they're, they're useless before him. He says, hail is coming tomorrow. Let's just stay inside and see what happens, right? And so God in his mercy is making his name known to a pagan nation here. That's what's happening in the book of Exodus. And it, it, it's amazing how glorious he is because some of them actually believe. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on, how they fear the word of the Lord, and so they protect their crops. What we do know is a few chapters later, when the people of Israel actually leave Egypt, in verse 38, it says a mixed multitude came with them, meaning non-Hebrews. We don't know who those people are. We don't know exactly their story. My guess is you probably had some Egyptians going, you know what? Our gods are all laying face down. Let's stick with this guy. Maybe you had some peoples from the other nations of the world that were also in captivity in Egypt. But when you imagine those people that have lived in this pagan nation where they have a king who calls himself a god, suddenly packing up their bags to leave the land with Moses and the people of God, all of a sudden these plagues start to take on a little bit different perspective, don't they? Like now we're, now we're starting to see that this isn't just like pounding people and judging people and bringing death. This is offering life. Now death is going to come, right? Because some people fear the word of the Lord and they go get their stuff and they bring it inside. Some people don't. And the word of Moses comes true. They experience death. But this, this purpose here, to make God's purpose here, to make his name known among the nations, this is not just something he came up with in Exodus. This is what you see of God throughout Scripture. You think back to uh, Abram, when he called Abram in Genesis 12. He said, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right, I will bless you in order to make you a blessing. And then he calls this people to himself and he, he kind of carves them out as his own. He calls them his firstborn son in the book of Exodus here, right? But the purpose is never to give them special treatment at the expense of the rest of the world. The purpose is to give them special treatment to raise them up and show himself to the nations that others might come and accept his mercy and love and kindness. You hear it all throughout the scriptures. You hear it when the prophet Isaiah 
is prophesying about the servant of the Lord. And it's kind of one of those dual meanings where you've got a little bit of Israel in view and a little bit of this servant Messiah who's to come. And he says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And we hear it when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's always the heart of God to be known among the nations. He's not just this tribal God or this ethnic deity that has his own people and no one else is involved. He's inviting people from every corner of the earth to come to him in his mercy. And the book of Revelation tells us someday they will. And when all of history culminates and all of these stories, our own included, are past tense and we're reflecting back, we'll look around as we bow down the throne and we will see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation of the world, and they will be praising the name of Jesus. People from Columbia, South Carolina, people from Niger, people from China, people from Eastern Europe, people from the West Coast, people from the Northwest, people from the Northeast, black people, white people, people of all colors, people of all languages, God is glorious enough to be known among all the nations of the world, and his heart has always been to display his glory on that kind of stage. And so here he is saying to Pharaoh, make no mistake, Pharaoh. You think you're the center of the world. You think you're a god. I could snuff you out in a second. Do you know why you're still alive? you know why you haven't died yet? Why I haven't taken you down? It's because I'm raising you up just a little bit higher so that just a few more people will see who I am. You're here for me, not the other way around. Now, Pharaoh kind of catches on just a little bit here. Verse 27, he kind of sort of repents. We'll come back to that in a minute. He makes his false promise. Moses intervenes. He stops this big hailstorm, and then Pharaoh walks back his word. He's like, no, I'm not doing that. There's a contrast here between the word of God God says, this is going to happen, and it happens. Pharaoh says, this is going to happen, and then it doesn't. He's unreliable. So he refuses to listen. And we get to plague eight here, beginning in chapter 10. And we see the, kind of the other side of God's primary purpose of the plagues articulated. So in chapter 10, we'll just look at these first couple of verses just to kind of look at what God says here. He says, go into Pharaoh now, for I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. That's another way of saying what we just talked about. And that you, so now it's a different audience, talking to Moses, different, slightly different purpose here, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among, among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And again, I don't think he's just talking to Moses. I think he's talking to Moses. I think he's talking through Moses to Israel and through Israel to all who will hope in the Son of God someday. That these things are happening so that you may tell your sons and your grandsons, and this may echo down through the ages, that I am the Lord who brought my people up out of Egypt. If you want to see a fascinating little word study, I guess it would be a phrase study, just do a little Bible search uh, on out of Egypt or brought up out of Egypt. And, and look at all the different times that that exact phrase occurs in the Scripture. What you're going to find is it basically occurs in every age. 
It's going to be the grounds for the law in the book of Leviticus. When this generation dies, Joseph, uh, not Joseph, uh, Joshua is leading the people into Canaan, and he's going to bring up the same thing. This is the Lord who brought us out of Egypt. As they begin to settle in the land in the time of the judges, they're going to appeal to the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt. In the days of the kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, we're going to hear about the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt. The psalmist is going to sing about the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt. And the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea, they all make explicit reference to the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt. This is who He is. So in the New Testament, when uh, Stephen is standing before the Jewish people, and they're getting more and more angry at him in Acts chapter 7, he says, guys, this is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt, and now He has sent His Son to bring us up out of sin and death. They can't bear to hear the words that He proclaims to them. But he's trying to show them that this is our story. The story is continuing. He is still the Lord and he's still bringing people up out of their misery. This is what he does. Perhaps the most amazing reference like this is actually in the book of Jude, uh, Jude 5. Remember, Jude doesn't have chapters, so we just say Jude 5. Jude 5 references who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. But the word before that clause is Jesus. Jude says, Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. See, Jude looks back on what we're reading now through the lens of the cross and recognizes that the eternal Son of God was setting His people free back then. And just as He set His people free from Egyptian captivity, He has set us free from sin. So this is the second major purpose of the plagues. God is revealing His heart to His people. I am the God who rescues, who brings you up out of the things that weigh you down. Friends, what has He brought you up out of? What do we praise Him for? We praise Him because He's brought us up out of cancer. We don't have to give up when we get a bad diagnosis. We praise Him because He's brought us up out of addiction. We don't have to be who we've been. We don't have to keep doing the same things. We praise Him because He has brought us up out of broken relationships, out of messed up families, out of difficult backgrounds, out of all those times when we followed the path of Pharaoh, plugged our ears and covered our eyes as He worked among us. He has continued to bring us up out of those things. The same heart we see it in action in our lives is in action here on the pages of Exodus. So God's going to send these locusts. And again, we could talk about locusts. We could talk about how they bring judgment. We could talk about how he's taking out the God of the crops. But what we need to see here is that this is the God. This is the Lord who brings his people up out of Egypt. And he's the Lord who brings us up out of sin and slavery even to this day. By the time we get to the end of this plague, there in the middle of chapter 27, a lot of Pharaoh's servants are starting to waver. They're they're saying, are you sure you want to keep going against this guy? Maybe we should listen to him this time, right? So Pharaoh brings Moses and Aaron back in. Then he gets mad and he casts them out. God sends the plague. Pharaoh repents and then he recants again. We're back where we started. The same pattern, different details, little variations here and there. In Pharaoh, by the way, we see this kind of paradigm of an unbelieving heart. You see these different characteristics of what the fruit that 
is born by an unbelieving heart. You see this obstinate unbelief. He's just unwilling to acknowledge what's clearly in front of him. And you think about that first plague with the livestock, and Moses said, your livestock's going to die, but ours is going to be fine. Pharaoh sends somebody to go check on that, and the guy comes back and says, yep, all their livestock is fine. How's my livestock? They're all dead. And Pharaoh's like, hmm, I wonder what this means. He just, he just won't see it. He just won't grasp and believe what's clearly in front of him. There's this arrogant self-reliance. He's refusing to listen to other people. People are cautioning him and counseling him. He's just plugging his ears. And then you see this qualified repentance. He says, this time I have sinned. I go, oh, Moses, I crossed the line. My bad. I've been generally walking in the right way. Now this time I've kind of messed up. Sorry about that. Would you, uh, would you ask God to remove this judgment? Right? He's, he's repenting, but it's half-hearted. It's shallow. And then there are these empty promises. If you do this, God, then I will do this. And he's willing to follow the Lord on his terms. He's willing to do what God tells him to do as long as God will do what he wants him to do. Surely some of us can relate to that. Right? You see the evidence here of a hardened heart. And we talked last week about how a heart becomes hardened and, and what God's doing in the process and what the person's doing in the process. And it's, it's not always easy to sort that out when you're interacting with people. But when you start to see things like this in a person's life, and that becomes consistent over and over and over, these sort of empty promises of faithfulness. Well, if God would do this, then I would obey. And this qualified repentance, like, well, I was wrong here, but, you know, I'm mostly right. And just this kind of unwillingness to see what's clearly in front of them, this arrogant unwillingness to listen to others, that's all evidence of a hard heart. And we see that in the, in the lives of someone else, in the life of someone else. We can conclude, we can't know the condition of their heart, but we can see the fruit in their lives. We see what's lacking there. What's lacking is the obedience that follows faith. But don't be mistaken, these kinds of things can exist in our hearts too. Right? We talked about that last week, how easy it is for the people of God to grow hardened. So we want to be on guard against this. Are you ever repenting before the Lord with this sort of qualified repentance? Are you ever kind of negotiating with God? I'll obey you as long as you're willing to do these things for me. Are you listening to others or plugging your ears? We can learn a lot from Pharaoh. When we get to the ninth plague here, and there's a lot less interaction, the text just seems to settle at this point. There's darkness in the land. The end seems inevitable by the time you get to the ninth plague. There's not even much argument. There's not a lot of negotiation. Moses and Pharaoh get in this like one last little standoff, and it just kind of ends. And the darkness just seems to kind of picture the, the spiritual condition of the land and the people in it. And, and, and it's almost like the calm before a storm. And this is where the text ends at the end of chapter 10. It's like that moment before a storm when the clouds are gathering and it just starts to get kind of eerily quiet and you know that something is coming, right? That, that's where we're at here at the end of chapter 10. The, the ultimate judgment is coming, and we're going to look at that as we get into chapter 11. But I want to close by just reflecting a little bit on what we can learn from this. And you think about all these plagues, 
Now, again, holding our minds, what is God doing in the midst of this? What does he say he is doing? And I think we can see his heart for the nations. We can see his authority over all things. We can see his love for his people. But the biggest thing I want you to think about as we walk away from this is these stories are not someone else's stories. Right? These are our stories. These are our people. And this is our God. And so we have to ask ourselves if our lives match the heart of God that we see in this passage. And I'm not talking about bringing plagues and judgment on people. That's in the hand of the Lord. But this heart to make his name known among the nations, this desire to show his love to all peoples, to bring him glory to the ends of the earth. Is that our heartbeat? Is that what we care about? Is that what we're living for? Are you seeking to make his name known among the nations, among you, your, your neighbors, your, your co-workers, your roommates, your family, your friends? Are you living in submission to his sovereign authority? Or have you started to go down the path of Pharaoh just a little bit, kind of making these empty promises, this half-hearted repentance? You know, I'll do this if you'll do that. The, the plague's Part of the purpose of the plagues in, in the book of Exodus is to put those questions before us. This is one of those uh, kind of shining moments in the scripture where the veil is peeled back and God says, this is who I am. As we encounter this in the text of scripture, we're given the opportunity to ask, who am I and am I reflecting him? So we're going to take communion here in just a moment. And if you're here with us this morning, and you would consider yourself a believer, and you're, you're following after Jesus, and you're hoping in the gospel that, that we have talked about and sang about and uh, prayed in the, on the grounds of this morning, uh, we would invite you to take communion with us. I would invite you, before we do, to, to take a moment to kind of reflect on this sermon and reflect on uh, this passage and reflect on this picture of God, this God who wants to make his name known among the nations. And Reveal his heart to his people and ask yourself, is this true of me? Am I living like this? Am I living like I belong to him? Am I living like he is my God? If you're here today and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, you need to know that this next part of the service is, is actually just for believers. Uh, we're going we're gonna to get up during the song. There are tables at the back and there's just bread and this juice and it's, it's symbolic of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. He, on the night before he was betrayed, he, he, he took bread and he broke it and he told his disciples, this is my body. And he poured uh, substance into a cup. And he said, this is the blood, of the new covenant. And he said, I want you to do this and I want you to do it in remembrance of me. It's a little bit like what God is doing in the plagues here. When he says to Moses, I want you to tell your sons and your grandsons. I want this to echo down through the generations, right? Communion is a bit like that for the people of God in the new covenant. We're gathering around this table as a statement of faith, uh, as a, an action of belief, and a, a moment to remind ourselves of the sacrifice of Christ. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I, I, I just invite you to stay seated. You, you don't need to feel awkward about that. You're, you're welcome to spend the time in prayer. We would actually uh, beg of you to spend the time really thinking through what you have heard and, and asking yourself, do I know this Lord? And if not, what God am I trusting in? And what does this story reveal about the condition of my own heart? And if you'd like some help unpacking those questions, we'd love to talk to you more about that. But for those of us who are trusting in Christ, 
I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing, and, and then the communion table is open to you. You can go and, and take of it yourself and then return to your seat, uh, and then we'll close in song. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your, your mercy. Thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself to your people. Thank you, God, that you do not leave us in darkness. We think about the darkness that sat over the land of Egypt on this day where, we, where our text ends this morning. We realize that it is but a, a foretaste or a picture of the darkness that resides in each of our hearts apart from the light and the glory of the face of Christ. So, Lord, we thank you for bringing light into our hearts. We thank you for sending Jesus as the light of the world that we do not have to stumble in darkness any longer. God, if there are any of us here today who do not know you and are still walking in this darkness or still plagued by our own version of it, Lord, we pray that you would rescue us this morning. Pray that you would work in hearts and soften hearts and draw them to yourself. Lord, I pray that you'd work in my heart. I pray that you'd work in the hearts of our members here at Midlands, that we would be a people who want to make your name known among the nations beginning here in West Columbia, extending out into our city and our region and to the ends of the earth. Lord, help us to care about the things you care about. Lord, we love you and we give this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray.